And now, here we go. November 25th, 2012, lecture discussion number 90 on the Book of Romans. And well, now, in this process of pounding away at this verse, uh, Romans, uh, that is Romans 5.12, uh, we've accumulated a lot of things to sift through, and here's a few of them on the board. Um, but there's a lot more that aren't on the board, and by now, most of you who have been with the This lecture series at Cliffside for a while already know that we won't and we can't and we can't possibly get to everything that I am putting on the board or bringing up at any time. We just can't get to all of it. And I never intend to, by the way, when I'm bringing it up. It's never my intention to get to all of it. So I always say that we never intend to, but I really mean I never intend to. We'll never get to the critical uh, point Uh, of understanding all of this stuff or reach critical mass for another term that we could use. Um, What I look for, what I'm trying to accomplish, uh, is in fact the gathering process or the gathering operation of it, uh, which is asking the questions. I want to make sure that we've asked all the questions. It's never, as I said, enters my mind that we'll answer all the questions. There's too many questions. Uh, the asking the questions part, the finding the questions part, that, that is the significant part of what we're doing. That's the one that I can't fail at if I ask myself, what is it that I'm going to do uh, on this particular series, in this case Romans? Well, I'm going to get all the questions. Well, what about the answers that people ask me? Well, believe it or not, I fail you if I don't bring up the questions. You're on your own with the answers anyway. Because without the correct questions, studying Scripture becomes so very difficult. Uh, It results, if you don't know what questions to ask, you will end up with a depthless interpretation. And you'll never know it. So I do the best I can to make certain that we amass as much uh, information as we can in each passage. And we confront, regardless of our ability to grasp all of it, uh, as much as we can, or even investigate most of it. Well, just as, as long as you know what's there, then you can go back on your own for the rest of your life and figure it out. Now, Dave was talking to me about a, a Benjamin from Chicago. I read uh, one of his letters the other day, and, and this is what he is doing. He's just fascinated by what the questions are, and I'm so very proud of Benjamin and how he functions. That He's going to spend his life... Um, trying to answer them. Good for him. Now, occasionally, I will answer a question. Why? It's exactly right. It's two points. It's to quell the rebellion. And, and then I get to ask you more questions that come out of that question. And that, of course, is what's going on here. It's how it works. And it's a system, and it's not just mine. I stole it from somebody. But it's a system that causes frustration in congregations, especially, because most people yearn for what they have been conditioned to yearn for, which is a 20-minute sitcom sermon. You've been watching them now for, what, 50 years? I Love Lucy, it resolved in 20 minutes after commercials. You've been doing that your whole lives, and you're conditioned to it. Um, and, and you want, and everybody wants, a, a sermon that resolves exactly at 11.55 a.m. every Sunday. After uh, 35 songs that all have the same phrase in them and uh, 15 exhortations to give more money, 
But I consider, by the way, those 20-minute sermons, and this is going to get me in trouble. I get more hate mail. But I consider those 20-minute sermons to be worthless. Let me say it again. They're worthless. They're offensive. They're disrespectful. Valueless, frankly. And if I had $5, I raised it to $5 because of inflation. For every time somebody told me this, and I get it all the time, I have read the Bible through and through, cover to cover, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times, they'll tell me. And they'll say, I've been going to church 10, 20, 30 years, taught Sunday school, blah, blah, blah. If I had five bucks every time I've got that said to me, I would have my own Lamborghini collection. And Cliffside would have her own facility again, and we'd have heat. Look at you all. It's freezing in here. And it's been freezing in every building we've ever been in, hasn't it? It is. That is the one consistent thing. So if I had $5 for every time somebody bragged to me about how many times they read the Bible, and as soon as you tell me that, I know something. What? What do I know? The instant you come up to me and you say, I've read the Bible through and through, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. What do I immediately know about you? You're clueless. I know it immediately. So I want your five dollars. We turn the heat on around here. It's not Devin. Wait, it's warm right now. Wait till wait till February. <laughs> but we're all used to it. We've had many buildings where people wore parkas and had four pairs of socks and burned a little fire in front of them. <laughs> You're laughing. That's exactly what's happening. <laughs> yeah, that's true, isn't it, Bonnie? Yeah, yeah. We asked people to move so we could burn their chair. <laughs> Anyway, we'd have a nice facility with, uh, with little wood stoves everywhere. The point being that it doesn't matter how many cursory speed readings of the Bible you may have accomplished, or how many 20-minute sermons you've heard, or how many 15-minute Sunday school classes you've taught. What matters is what do you believe. That's what matters. And then, what have you really learned? What questions have you answered or asked to learn what you think you know? What level of understanding do you have? Put it better, what level of understanding or wisdom do you desire to have? Let's put it in contrast. Do you love the simple? Proverbs 1.22. He asks you that, God says, to your face, to my face. How long will you love the simple? When are you going to move off of the simple? What word do I want to uh, say? It is stuck on simple. What word do I want to uh, exchange for simple? How long are you going to be stuck? Yeah, you know the word, don't you? You're all saying it. I think it's most obvious, especially in our culture today, that, that most people love the simple today. I submit as my evidence Justin Bieber. Lady Gog-Gog. I do. Well, I mean, look, it can't get any more simple than that. You may think that that's complicated. They think they're complicated, but they're not. They're profoundly simple. It's been going on for a long time. Two and a half brain cells is our number one sitcom. More people watch that show than any other show. You cannot get more simple than that show. It is absolutely the epitome, the acme of ignorance that can be conceived today. But it's the number one sitcom 
20 minutes resolved every week, no matter what, with a laugh track. That's how you know. You, they, you, if you watch that show, let me help you. You are so stupid that they have to laugh for you. <clears throat> but that's what we got, isn't it? It's our new Everyone Gets a Participation Trophy Award World. Right? Our country is very proud of their self-esteem and equally proud of their ignorance without knowing it's ignorance. And that's where we're at. That is in the church. By the way, they used to say this. When the church becomes simple, the country will become simple. When we lose the churches as a place where wisdom is taught, where philosophy and, and theology and doctrine and math, science is, is taught, that's where the churches used to be, all from a Christ-centered or a Christ-centric perspective. When the church loses that, the country will lose it as well. So it is not a coincidence that our churches are this way. Am I ranting again? Yes, I am. Those of you on the Internet who call me the ranting idiot, uh, I'm just trying to help you out. But loving the simple is the mantra um, for the masses today. It has started in the churches. It has now spread to the country. And seeking wisdom in the churches, seeking wisdom in the country is no longer considered. We're not interested in it. And so this is the state of affairs that we have. But the greatest consequence uh, to so many who are unaware that they are stuck on simple, those who don't know that they don't know, is that they come to believe that the Bible is at their level. They end up thinking that Scripture is also simple, and it's also easy. And I get that all the time. Well, the Bible is just a collection of simple stories, uh, fables, etc., blah, blah, Right? And that is disastrous. That's ruinous. It has the effect of instilling into everyone who thinks, uh, who so thinks, a staggering level of arrogance. And thus they come to me and they say, I've read the Bible ten times. And they boast about that. Let me be clear. You did not read the Bible ten times. You did not. You might have thought you did, but you really didn't. What did you do? You turned the pages of the Bible all the way through ten times. But I have a higher standard for the word reading than you do. No one with a true understanding of what is in Scripture ever blusters about his or her mastery of it. They never do it. They know they can spend their whole lifetime reading one page. And they would never say that they had read the whole Bible. Never. True understanding brings awe and humility. When you have a true understanding of Scripture, what, what comes with it is humility. That's what's wrong. Let me go again. As you know, I taught school many years. I was at the basketball tournament this week. I got to see students of mine that are in their 50s. That's really exciting, by the way. Hi, Lou. You're not 50 yet, are you? 47. So Lou is one of my favorite ex-students. We will not talk about how old you are, Katrina. We will not, though I know. Katrina, a long time ago, said that she was an equal 30 years away from me. But it's not fun to sit around and talk to people who have grandchildren who are students of yours. Is it, Bill? It's not. No, it's not. But that's my lot in life now. 
But that's the mistake that I saw in the school district with this self-esteem, everybody gets a trophy system that we have. The mistake is, is that we strip people of their humility, which is the last thing we ought to do. And then they take this misplaced arrogance into everywhere of their lives, and they take it into their churches, and they really think they know things, and that they've mastered the Bible, give me my badge. You can't get a Bible badge. There's not enough time. I want you to reflect on who it is that teaches you, who gives you, who unlocks the Bible for you. What would happen to you if he didn't? Anyway, just recognize how massive for for today, how massive infinity is. The Bible is infinite and we are not duh. So all of that to say we're not going to get through this pile. This is a small pile, but there's a huge pile in where we're at in Romans 5:12. One verse. We're not going to answer all the questions in one verse because there's so many questions. But you need to know the pile is there. You need to know what you don't know or what I call the known unknowns, right? Okay, so let's review a portion of what we've covered to this point and select something to investigate a little bit more fully. Hey, what we're going to look at today is childbirth. I'm going to ask some more questions. Are the seed of the woman is it caused? And right off the bat, that should make you realize, wait a minute, the seed of the woman. What's the first thing you think of when, you, when somebody says, seed of the woman? You might remember Janet from Oklahoma's question last Sunday that she wrote to us on the purpose and, and the impact Genesis 3.15 has on all of Scripture. But more so on the virgin birth. The reason that we have a virgin birth is because of Genesis 3.15. That's why we do. That's where it starts. The reason we have the Davidic covenant promises, the, prom- the prophecies made by the prophet Nathan to, uh, to David, the reason we have that is because of Genesis 3.15. And, of course, the virgin birth. Let's go ahead and really very fast now go to Jeremiah so you can find this and know it's there and know how it gets fixed because it has to be fixed. Jeremiah 22.30. God makes a problem. He makes a problem that comes in conflict if you thought. It doesn't really, but most people would think it came in conflict conflict with Genesis 3.15, but he makes sure you understand why he has Genesis 3.15 or the seed of the woman or this childbirth issue that comes from, uh, that's raised again at Romans 5.12. So let's read 22.30 together so you know it's there. Very important. Underline it in your birth, uh, in your Bible. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childish, childless. Let me repeat it again. I said it badly. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. So this is Jeconiah or Kaniah. You also see it as Jehoiachin, but you'll see him mostly as Kaniah or Jeconiah. This is the king of Israel. And God says, write this man down as childless. He, none of his descendants will sit on the throne of David. So who, 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 more medicine. Who can't they be? None of his descendants. By the way, did he have children? Yeah, he did. 
But God said, write him down as if he didn't have children. None of his descendants will ever what? They'll never be in the Davidic line. They will never fulfill the Davidic promises. They will never fulfill Genesis 3.15. They will never be who? They will never be the Messiah. And who is the Messiah? God. I will never be a descendant of Jeconiah. But yet I have a Davidic promise where it says that through David, I will sit on the throne of David. And it also has a promise that says, seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. The virgin birth, the curse of Jeconiah, the Davidic promises are all together. And this is the beginning of the mystery of the incarnation in the sense that these two passages are resolved if you will want to call them resolved, with the virgin birth. The virgin birth takes care of the fact that I have the David line broken here. And it also deals with the virgin birth, also solves the problem of Romans 5.12. Through one man, sin and death entered all, thus death spread to all. Does not say through the woman. Very important to understand that Genesis 3.15 places the seed of the woman alongside of Romans 5.12 through one man. Okay, let me flip this over so I can start putting that on there for you. See if I hit anything, spinning it backwards. It's getting kind of decrepit, my... Amazing platinum reversible holy dry erase board beginning to show age, entropy, second law thermodynamics. It was erased beautifully for me the other day. Now it's not. I have to fix it again. So that's why we're stalling. Those of you on the Internet, I'm erasing the board because I did not erase the board before the class begun because I don't remember why. But it had to be a good reason. Romans 5.12. Genesis. 3.15 cannot be studied apart from one another. The Bible puts 3.15, the seed of the woman, alongside Romans 5.12 through one man. You, I hope you can see the language is even comparable or comparable or, if you will, contrasting. See, we would normally assign the word seed to who? Would we assign the word seed to a woman? No one says the seed of the woman. What's the woman have? She has the egg. The man has the seed. So why does Genesis 3.15 say the seed of the woman? Immediately, you should begin to say to yourself, wow, that's really interesting. Why? God assigns the word seed in Genesis 3.15 to the woman. And the woman, by the way, see, you have this wonderful contrast that shows up. Through, through one man, sin entered the world, and death entered, and death spread, and sin entered, etc. Seed of the woman who comes. The solution to death and sin. But who was deceived? The man was not deceived, 1 Timothy 2.14. But it's the woman who is deceived. Why does the deceived woman get the seed of the woman thing? 
How is this to be explained? Why is it that, that Adam, and we're going to get to this in a couple of weeks, remember there's two trees, you've got to know again, I say it all the time, i got the tree of Shirley Die, and everybody says that they write me all the time, who's Shirley Die? What is she, where? Okay, let me become, <laughs> it's a joke, they do it as a joke, I know they're funny, they've watched Airplane, right? Please don't call me Shirley. Surely die. If you eat from this tree, you will surely die. It, we have to keep you from eating from this one after you've eaten from this one, lest you reach out your hand and live forever. Okay? So this is the tree. I say this a lot. I know it bores all of you that have heard it so many times. I have the tree of live forever in sin or in death, and I have the tree of death. So I don't want to. The tree of life is really the, the tree of live forever if you're dead. You'll be dead forever if you follow that. So somehow Adam took from this tree after a long period of time of consideration, but did not go to this one. That's very important to know. Because of that, because of those decisions that he made there, we have this very complicated plan of salvation. But again, Timothy 2.15 has to be added. Let make sure. First Timothy 2.15. So when you're studying the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, immediately you have to contrast it with Romans 5.12, and then you've got to go down to 1 Timothy 2.15, where this is the, the phrase that is there. Nevertheless, Even though the woman was deceived, she shall be saved in childbirth. So back we are, if you were wondering how this is all about childbirth. What does that mean? She shall be saved in childbirth. There's a lot of you in here that have had children. Even Katrina has had a child, even though she is stealing one presently or currently. So many of you know about childbirth. Some of you do not. I do not know very much about childbirth, and for that I am grateful. But you women know about childbirth, and if you had to pick one thing that was going to save you, would you pick childbirth? But that's what the Bible says about the deceived woman who went to this tree first, brought that, brought the poison back to her husband, and he took of the poison and joined her in death. And why he did that is incredibly important to know. Because he was not deceived. When he did it, he did it with an incredible amount of intelligence and wisdom and understanding. Not a fool. Get that out of your head. Somehow they didn't go to the second tree, but the second tree had to be protected from them because eventually what would happen? The corruption would overcome them. How long did he last before... How long did how how long did he hang on is one of the most important questions in that lesson. But it says the woman who was first in transgression, who was the one that was deceived, will be saved by 
childbirth. What does that mean? It's a very, very difficult question. And how do we explain this impossible to reconcile series of verses and events? Now, the answer to that is to understand the federal headship of Adam and Christ. The only two uh, who ever hold that office. Adam has lost his. Christ, of course, remains the federal head of humanity for all eternity. But the only two to hold that office, and the reason that they held it, uh, is that's, uh, that solves so much of this. Okay? So there's some, some questions for you to, to wrestle with. And now we'll move on to our next thing, which is, I've got to flip it back over again. Hopefully it'll continue to work one more time. Now we're going to take on this. This inexplicable naming of the animals. See, Adam named the animals. And then he named the woman, woman. That's what he did. Read it. He named the woman, woman. And then he renamed the woman when she was dead. So he renamed the dead woman, the mother of the living. So he names the animals, names the woman, calls her woman. That's a name that I've hardly ever used without fear for my life. Thought of it a couple of times. I knew better, though her knees are going bad now. And if I run upstairs, i got at least 30 minutes before I have to deal with anything. Or run downstairs, I'm in a lot of trouble. Oh, oh, you're going to what? Protect me? No. No, you're not. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Let me return to this. Out of Adam, and we'll read it in a minute, God builds the helper. So if you wish, the correct way to say it is he named the helper woman. A comparable or a comparable, whichever you wish, person, not inferior, but she cannot be the federal head. Why can't she be the federal head? I have one. Positions taken. Now you can ask, why did God select Adam to be the federal head and not the helper? But he names the helper woman. And then the helper dies, or the woman dies by going to the tree of poison and bringing the poison back to him. He renames after he has the solution, i uh, getting ahead of myself, but after the event is over, he renames the dead woman who is dead now, who is dying physically, not spiritually. He renames her living, if you will. The mother of all living. What's that all about, Alfie? If you know what, who Alfie is, you've just become 55. But the point is, what's that all about? Why does he name the helper woman? He tells you, by the way, why he did it. And then why does he rename her, when she's dead, life? The mother of life. Okay? And then we have uh, to deal with this naming in the, uh, of the animals. This is an extremely important thing. Last year, I, last year, last week I talked about there are six blocks, right? And, and, and so we are dealing with the first two of those. Genesis 2.15 through 3.1 is our first two blocks of these six blocks that have this order in them. 
this man, death, helper, woman, animal, name, order. And sometimes it's reversed, sometimes it's moved around. But those are the elements of each block. Each block has a separate subject, but it all has the same pattern in it. And so we have to find that pattern and then see how that pattern applies to the information in it. So certainly Genesis 2.15 through 20, which is block number one, makes it clear... Absolutely clear that the naming of the animals by Adam have to be before the building of the woman, even though God says it's not good. And by the way, there's a, there's a mystery right there because God goes, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. How many goods is that? I gotta do it really carefully. Good, 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 very good. And then he says, not good. He says it's not good that the man or the federal head of all humanity should be alone. It's not good. What do we need? If you're the federal head of all humanity and there's only you, what do we need? It'd be nice if you were the head of other people, right? That'd be like me saying, I'm in charge. And it's just me. Not good. God wants more people. And he says we have to make a helper. But before we can make a helper, what do we have to do? We've got to name the animals. It's critically important. We can't be making any helper until we name the animals. So what's the obvious question there? What in the world does naming animals have to do with building the woman? It has a lot to do. Because it's obvious once you read the story that you can't build the woman or the helper Tell you name the animals. Makes perfect sense. How long is it going to take to name the animals? It says very clearly, as I did last week, he's got to name each and every one of them. So to repeat that, Adam is commanded to not eat from the surely die tree. Then it's not good that man should be alone. God would make a helper for Adam. But the first step in the building of the woman is the naming of each living soul. It says creature in your Bible. That's not entirely correct. It's living soul. Nefesh Kaya. The first step in the building of the woman is the name each living soul. So God brought every beast of the earth and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what Adam would call them. Genesis 2, 19 through 20. So let's read that again so you got that as firm as you can. Because that's very important. That's step two. Here it is, 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them and whatever Adam called each living soul. So cross out creature... And write the word soul. And whatever Adam called each living soul, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable or comparable to him. Okay? So after the naming of each and every animal comes the building of the woman. And to the shallow student of Scripture, that would seem to be inexplicable. But it made perfect sense to somebody who was watching it. Who made it? 
and heard everything that was said. You see, because Adam is the first federal head of humanity. But who else is there? And how many of them are watching? There's billions of them watching. Many millions for sure. I don't know exactly how many. So I guess I'll go with somewhere between many millions and billions. Who are they? It's the angelic host. And it made perfect sense. They were all probably sitting right there going, wow, God is going to make a helper. Uh-oh, can't do that until what? Until he gets ready, until he names all the animals. Then we can make the helper. Did they figure that out? I think they did, because it's really obvious. So it made perfect sense. The, the shallow student thinks this is what this has no relationship. See, most people read this and they don't realize that it's, a, it's um, the same thing. i flip it back over again here. Most people don't realize that first thing Adam is told is don't go to the surely die tree. And then the next thing he's told is you need a helper. And then he's told to name the animal. And then the woman is built out of him. Right? Not from the dust, out of him. He's built from the dust. She's built out of him. But those are all the same thing in the sense that they're all part of the whole. What people do is they go, okay, God tells him to go, don't eat from the surely die tree. And now he starts a new subject. You need a helper. And then he starts a new subject. You need to name the animals. And then he starts a new subject. The woman is built out of it. No, it's the same subject. There's a relationship from between the surely die tree, the building of the helper, I mean the, the, the helper, not good that we don't have a helper, the naming of the animals and calling her the helper woman. All of that is one whole story that is tied intricately together. And if you separate them out, or if you don't know they're all tied together, then what do you have? A depthless understanding of it. No wisdom. Okay. The angelic host is also watching. And who's in the angelic host? Satan, the anointed cherub, is there. And by the way, there is a reason why unfallen cherub guard the tree of live forever. To protect man from reaching his hand out to take from it once man is in a state of death. There's a reason the cherub are doing that, the cherubim. Because you could ask, why are the cherubim guarding the tree of life, right? Here's another question for you. Why not send Michael? Why can't Michael guard the tree of life? But we can't do that because God does not do things that don't make sense. And it makes perfect sense that the cherubim would guard the tree of life. Why does it make perfect sense that the cherubim have to guard the tree of life once Adam has taken the poison, if you will? Why not seraphim? Why not Michael? Why are the cherubim? Come on, you can do this. Because, because Satan is a cherub. Not just any cherub. He's the anointed cherub. He's the head of the cherubs. So who knows Satan the best? The cherubs do. And they're the ones that guard that tree of life because they know what? Satan the best. 
They know how powerful he is. They know how smart he is. They know how deceptive he is. And their job is to guard that tree of life from the people, the humans, that are poisoned. Okay. That was just for fun. Did that for fun. Back to the story. Anyway, it's quite important to remember that there's an audience to this process and to ask what it is that the audience is thinking. And it isn't just a small audience. It's it's hundreds of millions in all likelihood. Does the angelic host understand the purpose of the two trees? Yes, they do. They know why there's two trees there, and they know the significance of the decision with regard to each tree. I have a decision to eat and die, and a decision to stay in death forever or not. They understand that very, very well. How come they understand it, by the way? Think that through. Do they understand the purpose of making the comparable or the comparable helper? Absolutely they do. And they know how the tree of death and the comparable helper go together. And do they, they especially understand the comparable to him part. Because they heard the blessing of Genesis 1.26 through 28, after all. Really quickly, understand this. The book of Genesis is not written chronologically here. It's called the Hebrew principle of recurrence. In other words, the Hebrew, when he writes, he will give you something and then he will refer to it, give you more information to it. So if you read it as if it is, as if it is chronological, you will err there. We'll deal with that as we go on. You need to understand how Hebrews write things. The point is, is that knowing exactly when the angels, both the unfallen and the fallen, figure this out is also greatly significant for us to figure it out. So to say it another way, my point is that the angelic host, and specifically Satan, eventually knew the reasons for the true tree, two trees and, and the comparable helper and why the animals were named. They saw what Adam was what he had the capacity to do. The new king of Eden, because Satan, I'm sorry, uh, Adam is the new king of Eden, Satan is the ex-king of Eden. So I have a new Eden, if you will, in a sense that it's new in how it is uh, made, but probably in the exact same location as the mineral Eden of Ezekiel 28, but I I have another Eden here. And I have a new king of Eden, and this king is incredibly powerful, and the angels know it. And they know that he is special, and they know that he is different from them. And that was proven very soon by those two trees. And that was the reason the naming of the animals followed the commandment of the surely die tree. They got all of that figured out. They figured out very quickly how powerful he was and how special he was. God was proving things to the angelic host who were right now what? They're a mess. What happened to them? The deception of Satan happened to them. How many of them got deceived? Ask that question a lot. I'll make the case they all got deceived. How come some are fallen and some are not fallen? Because I really do have two sides, don't I? I have fallen angels and unfallen angels. But the question also is how many of the angels got deceived? If I have a fallen angel, what makes him fallen? And if I have an unfallen angel, what makes him unfallen? What's the difference between fallen and unfallen? I mean, I've got to have specifics, right? Anyway, I believe they're all watching us. 
And God says that he puts man on display for the angels. He says that in 1 Corinthians 4.9. He says it in Hebrews 10.33. He says it in 4.11 of Matthew. So I have the seen and the unseen, if you will. Perhaps the most often repeated mistake of the academics in the seminaries today or the commentation side of things is to disregard the theater or the spectacle or the display facet that is Scripture in those passages I just gave you. God intends for the angelic host to watch, to witness many things that seem to be innocuous, or even minor or insignificant to us, perhaps even needless to us. But many of those things are, in fact, crucial, vital pieces of information to this unseen angelic realm that is there. So we see the two trees and we think it's just for Adam. It's not just for Adam. We see the naming of the animals. We think, well, that's Adam naming the animals. You know, No. The helper being built, named woman... Name the mother of the living, that's just for the Adam. No. It's also for the angelic realm. The angelic realm is part of the story, isn't it? Well, yeah. That's the Satan part, right? The cherubim are there guarding the uh, tree of life. i got angels all over this story. Don't separate them out. To do so is to make a mistake as to what it all means. And it's vital. Train yourself to evaluate the events of Genesis uh, 1, 2, 3, and 4, especially, from the perspective of the fallen and unfallen angelic realm. Much of, uh, of what is there is specifically for them. If you take it and apply it to you, yeah, let me put it this way better, you don't count that much. It isn't about you. A lot of this is about the angelic realm. Much of what is there is specifically for them. That's the case of Matthew 4. If you're reading the testing of Christ thinking that this has something to do with you, you're in trouble in Matthew 4. The angels are part of that story. When that Satan is in confronting what's happening in Genesis 3 at Matthew 4, that makes sense. Genesis 6. Matthew 4 is about Genesis 6. 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20. The crucifixion in the context of 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20. The entombment especially is for who? Why does Christ entomb himself for three days and three nights? One of the aspects of that is that he has a proclamation to make to who? The angelic host. And they knew something else happened in three days and three nights that happened in Genesis 3. So if you don't recognize the Passover pattern of the crucifixion, the atonement, and the resurrection, three days and three nights, you will not understand Genesis 3. That's how they fit together. You see, to the angels, all of this is kind of new. Well, it is new. Let me put it this way. I know I'm running out of time here. Are we going to finish? Are we going to answer any questions today? Now you know why I started that. Whose job is it to find the answers? Is it my job to give you the answers? No. 
It's not my job. My job is to what? Ask the questions. <laughs> you should see Misty. It's great. I, I need to. I, I laugh about it all the time. Sometime I will film the audience when we have more of an audience. We were, talk, we were making jokes. How can we increase uh, the attendance to the lectures instead of the... We don't have a problem with attendance uh, on the Internet. But how do we improve the attendance here? Uh, we can pay people to come. I mean, that's, that's on the table. So all of you, we try the buffet. I'm counting. It's a four-crock-pot buffet with a big bag of chips. That's not bad. And a cake. That's, that's, that's great for us. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Okay, let's start again. To the angels, all of this is new. The organic physical reality is new. They're seeing this for the first time. Animals are new. As soon as they see the organic physical reality, what do they think? What are they thinking? They're thinking this has something to do with what? The fall of the angelic host. Satan's sin. As soon as they see it, what do they do? This is about us. How does this affect us? This physical reality. We're spiritual beings. How do we manipulate this physical reality? What is the first thing they all ran down to do? To play in the physical reality. Were they able to do it? Could they manipulate it? They had to work with it. They had to figure out how it worked. Then what happens immediately after that? I got animals. And what are they doing? They're running all over the place. These animals are manipulating the physical reality. But they're doing something that no angel probably ever saw, had any idea of. What were the animals doing? They were eating the physical reality. So animals are new. Eating is new. Think about it. Don't eat from this tree. You eat anything else. Eating is brand new to the angels. Why are we eating? We don't eat. Why do they eat? Some of them really like eating. It's obvious. I'm one of those. <laughs> Why do we eat? Look at them breathe. Why do they breathe? They drink water. What's water? How much understanding did they have of the makeup of the physical reality? By the way, as you know, this is why it's so important to understand quantum physics, which tells you the physical reality is 99.9% what? Empty space. Got to know that. So, animals are new. Eating is new. Multiplying is new. Because angels cannot multiply. Certainly, we have the new king of Eden, and it's, it's wondrous. This incredible new king of Eden is wondrous and powerful and special and filled to the brim with wisdom. He's smarter than them. How do I know that he's smarter than them? Because Satan is smarter than them, and he cannot be fooled by Satan. He's unique. Satan can't fool this guy. What's their opinion of him? You have to train yourself to have the same opinion of Adam that they have, or you will never understand why he took from that tree. 
Okay, so I want you to imagine how they're responding. What I want you to imagine what they're thinking when they see this. It's only reasonable to suppose that they see this as God's solution or God's answer, if you will, to the fall of Satan. And therefore, many, if not all of them, would be anticipating his response to it. They would think, this certainly has been done because of what Satan did. So what's, what's Satan going to do in response? And Satan can fool them. So I want you to start thinking about that. And, and what are the unfallen angels thinking? And what are the fallen angels doing or thinking? I submit that everybody is in awe and in wonder and in shock. And for Satan and his followers, I suspect, I suspect they're in chaos and turmoil because they don't believe there's a solution to something. What do they not believe there's a solution to? That's Matthew 4, right? That's Genesis 15. They don't think there's a solution. And yet here comes what looks like a solution. So how is it really a solution? How is it a solution? See, I suspect all of that is, they're in such chaos in both sides, probably based on what's provided, Genesis 15, Matthew 4, Matthew 26, 36 through 46, and other places. The first lie of Satan was in the context of free will and true existence. That's why I ask this question all the time. Now, notice what we did. We took on childbirth, we took on naming, and now we're back here to free will in existence, just in case you think that I don't have any organization at all. Let me repeat my small attempt, and it's a small attempt to, to phrase this. So I don't know what else to call it, a trivial. But I phrase this issue this way uh, to express it. I can't get the magnitude of the issue because I just don't have the ability, the intellect to do it. But let me say I put it this way. Let me ask it this way. If we don't have free will, then do we truly have existence? In other words, is the element, is there an element of free will inside of existence? Or in other words, is free will in existence inseparable? Because that teaches you what the lie of Satan is. The first lie of Satan. Because there was a first lie. And by the way, he knew it was a lie. He knew it was lying. Is free will essential to existence? Immediately, this careens into accountability, as you know. Anyway, this is the epicenter of the first lie. And let me repeat this again. Lie of Satan. Hard to understand this for some reason. Satan knew he was lying about this, but it didn't matter to him. More on that later. For today, consider that the, that the two sides, the fallen side of angels and the unfallen side of angels, would be furiously responding to God's overwhelming display of creativity. And how could they not think that this awesome display of power was primarily about their current state, their current condition? And organic physical reality was developing over a seven-day period. Yes, seven the seventh day is greatly important. You hear it all the time. Six days. Six days. No, seven days. The rest day, critically important to who? The angels. They knew what that seventh day was all about. They knew when God rested on the seventh day. Woo. That's a big piece. Animal life is exploding, vegetable life likewise bursting, water, atmosphere. 
I've tried many times over the years to imagine, and I, I can't do it with any justice, but I want you to start the process. What's going on within the two sides? I suspect that I had committees. You're on the animal naming committee. You've got to figure out why God brought all these animals to Adam and made him name them. What's that proved to us? What did that prove to Adam? And what did he name all the animals, by the way? Each and every one. Did Adam know what he was naming the animals would have an impact on the angelic host? Adam cannot be deceived. He is filled to the brim with wisdom. What does he do when God says, I think it's time to name the animals? Would he ask why? He just say, oh, okay, I'm going name some animals. Okay, that's what you want. Fred, Bertha, Martha. Didn't care, just did it, whatever I want to name them. Or did he know what was going on? Did he know the implications of the naming of the animals? I think it's obvious that he knew the implications of it. He knew why he was naming the animals, not just what he was doing, why he was doing it. So I think there's committees, I think there's meetings, I think there's reports. I think I have uh, angel newscasts, that's how I imagine it in my odd little way. So you could turn on angel TV and watch the angel newscaster talk about what's going on. God just created a physical reality, we've never seen anything like it. Oh my goodness, and there's, there's animals, what do we do? They're eating things. They have the capacity to multiply. News at 11. I assume that there's bias in the angel news media. Some angels were saying, no, this is not creation at all. This is merely the result of random physical processes over vast amounts of time. Do not be alarmed. I suspect that goes on. Anyway, certainly both sides would evaluate the animals for levels of what? As soon as they saw animals, what would they ask? Because what's inside the angelic host? What do I have inside the angelic host? I have an order, an authoritative order. Satan being at the very top of that order. Cherubim being second. He was the anointed of the cherubim, so he's the number one cherub. But I have other cherubs. Then I have seraphim. Then I have angels. I have Michael. I have Gabriel. I have an order. What's the obvious question? Why? How is that order determined? Now I've got animals. What's the first thing the animal angel committee of the unfallen get together to decide? What do they want to know about the animals right off the bat? Do they have existence? If they have existence, what do they have to have? True, they have to have true, in order to have true existence, in order to be called a living soul, Do they have free will? So I have the free will committee, don't I? The first questions would be about existence. They would notice that the animals are brought to Adam. That says that. The animals are brought to Adam. That is absolutely powerfully significant. Think it through. And that Adam had authority over them. He named them. He had naming authority. Did the angels have names? They do. Who named them? 
Who has authority over them? Is this, is this a replicated process? They notice that the animals did not name themselves. So they immediately note that the animal level of free will is less than angels and less than mankind. Why is this so? They are without guilt, yet they are living souls. I just jumped way ahead. What truth is here for these two sides? Just in the naming of the animals. Much less in the naming of the woman, the building of the woman, the fall of the woman, the fall of the man, the not going to the second tree, and on and on and on and on we go. So there's your big pile of questions. Uh, go ahead and put it in uh, single spacing. Put your name in the upper right-hand side, period, period number. Your teacher's name, and turn it in on Friday. Test will be on Sunday. What's your goal? Answer one question without asking anybody. See you next week. Let's rise and be dismissed.